Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, Shana Tova, Gmar Hasima Tova. Happy, healthy, and sweet New Year to you. And to you and everyone, Gmar Hasima Tova. We need a good year. Be a challenging year for sure. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, I don't know exactly uh, what happened around the country yesterday, but I know some of our local races here in the New York area went, I think, as the Jewish community would expect. Anything anything that caught your eye post-election day or primary day yesterday? Well, it's not about the individual races uh, so much. I don't think there were any major surprises except uh, uh, some of the incumbents lost on the statewide, on the assembly uh, races. Um, and I think there are a couple of things. One, people have to be very careful before they rush to judgment about candidates that we have to really find out what people believe. In many cases, you know, they, they didn't express views on Israel, and people assumed that the that they were hostile, and I think you'll find in some of the cases it's not true. But there is a trend in the country that is of great concern, and that is that we are seeing people elected to Congress, uh, at least half a dozen, maybe more, who will form a nucleus of a group, and they, and they are coming together as a group to that will uh, certainly be a vocal and visible uh, element. I think the Congress overall will be very strong, the new Congress, uh, despite a lot of the predictions um, that some of the people who are likely to win are more supportive than the people they're replacing. But in a number of cases, and in what I think people are discerning as a trend in terms of, especially on the very left of the Democratic Party, but also on the very right of the Republican Party, really disturbing um direction and, and concern about what the next generation, uh, what their views are going to be, and those who, who are going to come into office increasingly in the coming years. Um, we have to, to understand it. We have to make sure that we keep Israel as a bipartisan issue, that the partisanship and divisiveness uh, be addressed. And, and while there's some things involved in it that we, we can't change or that uh, are not rooted in facts, but in, in ideologies and, and often in ignorance, uh, there is there is this on the horizon, and I'm sure we're going to be discussing it many times in the coming year. And uh, obviously what would be best is if both sides of the aisle continue to have this, uh, um, I don't want to say sympathy, but certainly a positive attitude, let's put it that way, toward but, Israel. But there will be a continuing and a strong majority in the Congress that will be pro-Israel. Certainly, administration has uh, demonstrated that. But, you know, there's also so much partisanship that if the administration is for something, many people will be against it. If then um, there is, you know, the media feeds this, this frenzy often, um, and even with, a, and there can be legitimate differences, but there's, there's a, a different atmosphere it seems, than what we've known in the past. It's, uh, again, a Congress that will be supportive. You saw the things that were voted, the, the $38 billion uh, defense bill for Israel now, the voting for the um, uh, adopting the, the, the definition of anti-Semitism and the special envoy bill that was uh, passed uh, by the House this uh, in the last 48 hours. I mean, they're all indicators of, of the continuing support on, on the... <laughs> 
issues of concern, specific concern, but also the general issues. Yeah, my point was that the um, often we take it for granted. In order to maintain this, it requires work, and I think it's an important message to remind everybody about. Exactly, and now is the time for people who who complained yesterday that they couldn't register, they didn't couldn't vote because they weren't registered. Now's the time, and and we should not do it just because an election is coming up, but on an ongoing basis to to sustain the voter registration drive, voter education. Our yeshivas have to do more to educate kids about civic responsibility and uh, help them uh, understand the process and why they should be part of it. Did you read any of the analyses about 25 years since the Oslo Accords were signed? Uh, I've seen a number of them, That uh, some that say oh, it's dead and thank God that for that. Others saying, well, it's still the underpinning of uh, Middle East policy. Uh, trying to draw analogies to what what um, the initiatives that are underway now, which are n- not appropriate, I think it's very different. Um, but I've seen that across the board, every kind of analysis that one could imagine, and every kind of rereading of history uh, over the last twenty five years. I mean, some of those some of those who are um, who are analysts in this area forget many many different facts of the last quarter of the century, including intifadas that have taken place. And terror attacks that dominated some of those eras, including the era immediately after the signing of the Oslo Accords, you'll recall. Uh, and in addition to that, there's some that seem to have a tinge of sarcasm that Israel uh, has completely benefited from all this in terms of services they no longer have to provide for Palestinians and things like that. While, of course, the other side has not uh, gained at all, if anything, they have suffered in the last 25 years. And who would have thought uh, that this arrangement would, uh, would, would lead to additional suffering? among those who are already, uh, you know, being occupied, so to speak, by Israel. And this is, again, an area where people who who have who have lived through the facts, right, people who hopefully, uh, you know, for, for them this was a current event uh, that they remember 25 years ago, have to respond with letters to the editor, with, you know, responses on talk radio, etc., uh, because, it, because now this piece of history is becoming a big piece of propaganda. First of all, not, not everybody is lost. I mean, there are a lot of people who benefited a lot from the tens of billions of dollars that were poured into the PA. Certainly, Abbas, like Arafat, uh, and, and their children have benefited to become wealthy people uh, by siphoning off uh, a lot of the assistance that you referenced, and that the, the reforms that, and measures that were taken were, were things that were long in the works and had long been considered and pursued, including closing the PLO office. Uh, I would say not so much in terms of the hospitals, but in terms, but UNRWA and the demands to reform the Human Rights Council, the uh, the abuse of the UN by the Palestinians, which is ongoing and continuing now as it was then, uh, going back to to Durban and going back even before Oslo. But Oslo was supposed to cure a lot of these things and refocus the attention. And you see that the that the Palestinians still refuse to sit down seriously to negotiate. That they uh, are are. Uh, threatening in all sorts of ways to go to the International Criminal Court. And I think John Bolton's very strong and effective uh, retort to that and his uh, statement uh, essentially saying to the International Court, bring it on, but you're not going to threaten us or our allies, and specifically mentioning Israel, and and inhibit our right to to self-defense. So the you know these diversionary tactics continue virtually across the board when it comes to the to the PA and the 
uh, the report, there was a report that the White House uh, offered $5 billion to Abbas to come and negotiate, and they have made it clear that that, that, was, uh, that was not true. I think for $5 billion, he probably would have been there within 15 minutes because, uh, you know, there's always been an incentive when they, they benefit. But he clearly is not interested in negotiations. He's not interested in... Um, regardless of the cost to his own people. And the measures that are being taken, many people have written, will, will actually bring more pressure and hopefully make peace more likely, just as the reform of UNRWA, um, you know, will will end this uh, continuing uh, placement of the Palestinians generation after generation in the subservient position and in and not allowing them to, to live full lives and the, the discrimination they suffer in most of the Arab countries where they reside, not allowed to have uh, most jobs and, and uh, to, to contribute to society. So, you know, people jump and take it on a superficial uh, level, but I think that, they, that a closer examination of this and time will obviously be a greater dictator of uh, of what the ultimate impact and a- outcome will be. But Ab- Ab- Abbas is the one who brought this to the attention of the of the media, right? This uh, erroneous deal or, or supposed deal uh, about the five billion dollars, and I assume it was an aid, right? I, I assume yeah, it, 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 who, <laughs> who uh, claimed it, and um, I don't know if it's to show that he, you know, the sacrifice he's making. But the problem is that the sacrifices of the Palestinian people. It's like the BDS campaign, which uh, the, instigated by the PA, supported by the PA, you know, that they, they condemn the loss of jobs uh, because of what, right. but, but, Palestinians who lose the jobs. Yeah, understood. And it's but, because of them. But am I am I wrong that this has not been done in the past? Am I wrong that essentially, maybe not in the form of the deal the way Abbas described it, but essentially, haven't we brought the PA to the negotiating table? You know, I don't want to say bribery, but with, with cash payments, with financial aid, wasn't that the the sole incentive they ever had to sit at the table? But that was, and that was very much related to to the Oslo Accords. It was related to subsequent, uh, so I don't know, and and very generous offers yeah, so that I, they that they uh, rejected, both from Olmert uh, and Barack. If we remember the Annapolis uh, discussions, so many other things where the opportunities were were almost limitless for them, and the international community was prepared to put up, and did put up, the Europeans, others, so many billions of dollars and without any in- outcome, without any investment. And you hear it from the Arab leaders saying we've, we, it's a kleptocracy. We, we keep pouring in money. You don't see any benefit. There's no – all the industrial zones were, were destroyed. Everything – all of those initiatives have been uh, – have produced virtually nothing. And – uh, and you look at the Israeli Arabs, on the other hand, there's a thousand percent increase in those in, involved in high tech. You see the changes in, in the societies and driving around Israel, seeing the new houses and stuff that they built. I'm not saying everything is ideal, but I am saying that it's a very different circumstance. And the, it could be different today uh, for people, whether in Gaza or elsewhere. And, the, you know, we should remind people the demonstrations which continue, and they even are adapting new tactics of sending rafts with burning tires into Israeli waters, uh, hoping to hit, you know, the Israeli shore. In other words, they want to, oh, they literally want to want to cause damage on the docks of Israel, whatever. Yeah, on the docks, the beaches, the this right. pollution. Hey, I didn't it's, realize, uh, I'm saying and, to myself. And it carries, uh, you know, the, the, they're filled with um, 
liquids or other things that are flammable. But the point is that they that they're continuing the attempts to to break into the border and stuff. But the Hamas itself says it has nothing to do with right of return or anything. They said that this was uh, the march of the right of return. They said it was a diversion because of the internal tensions, because they couldn't produce. The people have no electricity. They don't have clean water. The jobs are, are almost uh, unheard of. I think it's 60 percent unemployment. Uh, and the reason that others are employed is because they're on the payroll for the government. I think 40 percent or more of the people work uh, probably much more for the government. Um, and the the breakup of the talks that the that, that even Egypt has thrown up its hand and said we're not going to negotiate uh, anymore. So before people you know yell at the administration and and the, the measures that it has taken, they should look at the reality on the ground, and that maybe there needs to be this kind of shock treatment if, if to to get people to realize that what's at stake. The Palestinian people, by overwhelming numbers, the, the polls that came out. Um, uh, are really remarkable. I think two-thirds said they want Abbas to resign, and uh, about 60%, I think it was, say they can't, that they are afraid of criticizing the PA because of the consequences. And it was close to 80%, I remember, um, talked about the perceived corruption in the PA institutions. So the, the reaction of the people is very clear that they see through some of these shams. Yeah, I mean, mo- mo- again, mostly concerned about the relationship with Hamas, right? If you took Hamas completely out of the picture, they may think differently of the uh, future of the PA. Actually, about 60, 62, 63%, if I'm remembering right, uh, said that uh, that they oppose Abbas's position that Hamas has to turn over the guns, you know, one government, one gun, mm-hmm. uh, and and including the security sector and weapons, because they don't trust them and that they don't want to see Hamas disarmed. Mm. Uh, by the way, for the record on the Abbas $5 billion thing, I believe it. I, 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 don't, I don't think it's anything different than the U.S. government's been doing all these years, uh, as much as the United States administration is denying the entire thing. I, I think it's, honestly, I think it's reasonable <laughs> for, I, I don't see what, what the problem is in, in offering some type of incentive. No, if, you, if you're offering a bribe to somebody to say, if you do this, we're going to give you $5 billion, which has been too often the tact to, to buy off people, and we've made, and Israel has made tremendous sacrifices as well in these kind of negotiations. Um, and, you know, that the cuts that are being made are the opposite, the flip side of that coin, where they're trying to pressure them to negotiate by, uh, by taking these measures, but also to end. It's a corrupt system when you have special committees of the UN. Uh, devoted just to propagandize for the Palestinians and spend millions and millions of dollars around the world just on that. There's no other country in the world that is subject to that, as, as well as the, the special item at the Human Rights Council, the constant resolutions of condemnation, the the UNRWA set up, the, the whole infrastructure, that, that 30,000 people employed by UNRWA, while the High Commissioner on Human Rights, who treats all the other refugees around the world, has 7,000 people. And and in in fact, this, the polls, <laughs> the studies that have been done now, say there are about thirty thousand people, Palestinians, who fit the generally accepted definition of refugee. It's the only case where generation after generation of people from the outside can be added to the rolls. Uh, and now five and a half million, I think, that, that UNRWA identifies as as uh, Palestinian refugees. 
And with all that in mind, the United Nations session starts uh, next week, I believe, or the 25th of September. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. This is not the first time that Washington has ordered the closure of the PLO office in Washington, right? Well, it hasn't happened yet. We had, uh, it was done before. I mean, there was no reason why this uh, PLO office, this was one of the outgrowths of uh, of Oslo as well. Uh, The PLO, um, you know, was a terrorist organization. Many will say is a terrorist organization. And um, they changed the name to the PA. It was, was supposed to wipe clean all of this, and yet we see their continuing support too often for terrorist activities and continuing to honor the martyrs and the, and the terrorists who, who killed Jews. And the more they kill, the more they, they get. Uh, this is outrageous practice. So the PLO office really has has no uh, function and no real meaningful role. And if there's no negotiations and they're not doing anything to encourage it, the administration said that, um, well, we're going to, you know, there's no reason to keep it open. It, it is a concession to them. And closing it, I think, the, the um, in, in light of the fact that they're refusing to meet, that the PA is refusing to meet with the U.S. negotiators, seems to make sense. Um, did, in fact, the uh, Israelis sell the Iron Dome missile defense system to Saudi Arabia? I do not know. I mean, it's not that far-fetched. I didn't get commissions, so I don't know. It's not that far-fetched an idea, right? I of mean, course it, not. And, and Israel is selling a lot of stuff to, to a lot of Arab countries, um, technology and, and uh, security, but also in terms of tactics, in terms of advice and other things. Uh, it, it has become more and more natural. In, uh, and, you know, now the, the oil pipeline that's being laid that will go to Jordan and from Jordan to Egypt and elsewhere will further enhance that cooperation and, and relationships. And the um, so... Is it possible that they sold them the technology or, or actually the, the system? Uh, I would not say it's uh, out of question. But Israel had no choice but to publicly deny it, right? They couldn't let that rumor stay out there without a, without a statement. Right, but I think, well, maybe denial is true. Sometimes See, my, you know, you know, the, true, too. There's an impression among regular people like me that Iron Dome has, is like a, it's sort of like a partnership between the U.S. and Israel. That in order to do that, they'd probably need U.S. permission. Is that... Is that, is I that, think that's true. That is true. Well, um, it's certainly a joint project, and I, and in other circumstances, they would need to be. It would need approval. So maybe the United States is selling it. Right. Uh, that that could be more likely, but uh, it is definitely and continues to be. And it was funded again in this thirty-eight billion dollar package, which uh, was passed by the Congress, and again shows bipartisan support for Israel uh, continues. And, you know, as the members look at the region, and, and that's one of the reassuring things, is that as they, as they look at the developments, you know, what we're facing now in Idlib, um, it's a very complicated circumstance, but you have Russia, uh, Iran, Assad lining up on one side. Uh, Turkey, actually, in this case, is on the other side because they want to also go after the Kurds, and they're setting up a scenario, I think, for them to do it, saying that the Kurds are aligning with the um, with the Assad government against the rebels. You have three million people living there. You probably have uh, fifty, seventy thousand 70,000 
uh, rebels and, and affiliated groups. The United States is still fighting ISIS in the region, and we have troops there, and we've warned them about the, the other side about uh, endangering the American troops. But the the each side is setting up circumstances such, uh, I think I mentioned uh, a week ago, that uh, the announcement that the rebels had brought chemical weapons into Idlib, to me, was not uh, reasonable. It didn't, it didn't sound right, but it does sound like an attempt to create a justification for them to do it and to say the other side had chemical weapons, the kind of lies and setups that they have done done before. And we know that at least three times this year already the Syrian forces have used um, uh, chemical weapons in, in their battles. Mm, so that, the, got, that got that, very little publicity, right? That got very little uh, publicity. And, and, <laughs> I, and I cite this because they're, they're all complicated situations. Everything right now is so interrelated with, uh, uh, you know, the Russians oppose the sanctions, but they benefit from the sanctions against Iran on oil because they're trying to sell their own oil uh, more and more. And right now they're aligning themselves with Turkey, with Iran, even though with Turkey the three-way leadership meeting didn't produce, uh, uh, didn't, didn't seem to produce much. And the, uh, you know, that they, they relied on the Europeans to the, the Iranians were relying on the Europeans to do stuff. Mogherini, the foreign minister for the EU, said they're going to continue to defend JCPOA as it collapses right in front of their very eyes. And and you see the sanctions, and with the big sanctions yet to come November 4th uh, on oil, uh, really having an across-the-board uh, impact on, on Iran, on its capabilities. It can still afford to support the terrorist operations and have these tens of thousands of militia there and building, but their people are, are suffering for it. They don't have water, they don't have jobs, they, the, the, the drought in the country is, is devastating and the failure to invest in water systems and they steal the water from Iraq. Forty percent of Iraq's water is being diverted. Now they're talking about putting their missiles there. I think that there's also a setup here for Iraq over the attack on their uh, the Basra consulate uh, could be a pretext for them to be able to to exert greater pressure and presence um, in uh, in Iraq as well. Go back for a second because we we keep uh, hearing about what's happening in the southwest portion of Syria, but now you're obviously referring to the northwest portion that all you know all these debates are about. So both those regions, both regions, northwest southwest were filled with refugees, right? Would that, that would be accurate, right? And, yeah. that, and now the question is, what's happening? So already we've been told that Assad has moved into the southwest region, right? That was the reason we mentioned last week that Israel essentially shutting down the whole humanitarian aid area uh, that they were so famous for over the last five years, correct? Well, also because the uh, rebels, are, it's the Syrian army has returned to the area right. and the rebels are around and they were helping the people. So, so is, it a, is it a similar situation in the northwest? Basically the same thing is happening. Now he moves there as well? And takes... That, the Iranians, that Assad, yes, Assad yeah. is moving in to take control. This is the last area really under rebel control. And mm. the Russians obviously are, are, are backing them. And... Um, and the um, and the Russians even have warned the United States that the uh, of the attacks that are going to come in this uh, in this area. There's going to be nowhere for the refugees to go. About it, and you know that they did this massive 
war games involving, uh, they, they did massive war games in Russia as a show of force, claiming 300,000 fighters and, you know, countless others, including some Chinese forces. But the they also did uh, naval exercises near Syria and have increased their capacity uh, near as they build up for this uh, final uh, attack against it, because they want Assad to take control. I don't think they want the Iranians uh, to be in control, and the uh, so they they have to walk a very tight line here. But they're you know, and it's always their interests that come first. There will be nowhere for the refugees to go at this point. That's exactly right. There's no place for them to go. They they Turkey doesn't want them, and in fact, could push back people uh, if they're unhappy with. Um, um, to do uh, to, if with the circumstances, and you know, for him, the big issue, of course, is Kurds, uh, much more than the uh, other issues. But he, I think, there are, are three million refugees in in uh, Turkey, or some huge number, and uh, you know, he could start forcing them back across the border. You know, the casual, a greater humanitarian crisis. The casual observer might accurately surmise that Syria has this, this is the most powerful Syria has been in years. Absolutely. They, they have retaken a lot of these areas. The question is whether they can sustain it. To what degree have the militias uh, infiltrated, the Shiite militias infiltrated the Syrian forces who are exhausted? And we know that they they, they put on the Syrian uh, uniforms. Um, this is a special concern nearer to the border, both with the Israel and with Jordan. Uh, I think that there is a lot of concern about what will happen in the during the course of this year, will we see more activity in, in the Lebanese side, which has been very quiet? You remember during the Assad years, the border with Syria was quiet. Right. They would do all the attacks through Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Now Lebanon is quiet, and any tensions and stuff are along the Syrian border. And what the outcome of, uh, and it could be so bloody in Idlib, uh, just on a humanitarian basis, aside yeah. from any concerns we have for Israel or, or Jordan or anybody else, the um, this this could be uh, very bloody. And with the specific interests that Iran's interests are unique, Turkey's interests are unique in the outcome here and what their stakes are, as true of the Russians as well. And last week I mentioned that um, again we were talking about the Israeli humanitarian effort you know basically coming to an end in that area in southwest syria um some people thought i was being cynical but i thought it was a good observation frankly that you know whatever intelligence israel was able to gather just by being in there and by having people who were there you know now under their jurisdiction because they're helping them medically etc was only to israel's advantage now they've lost all that well, I'm sure there's some truth to it, but uh, Israel's mission really was humanitarian. I am. Yeah, I'm not, people. not questioning and, that. And, I mean, they, they did. They want to see goodwill, but they were very realistic. In my discussions with the officers involved and stuff, they were, nobody was anticipating that there would be a sea change in attitude. Right. Although we have, we saw that some Syrian civilians were wishing Israel a happy New Year. Hmm. And expressing appreciation because the word gets out, you know, when 6,000 people are treated, you know, and each one has relatives and others, they can't say it publicly because they can be killed for having gone for treatment to Israel. But obviously, everybody knows, everybody saw the efforts, the, the, the clinics that they built uh, using and training Arab doctors to, to staff them. But the, and, and the goods and the other things that Israel uh, has provided, including paying the salaries, perhaps, of some of the 
uh, rebel groups staying along the, the border who, who protected Israel and, and were a sort of buffer, and now that's gone. Uh, so, you know, Israel's intelligence till now has been pretty good. The fact that 200 attacks against the, in 18 months against the shipments by Iran of weapons and hitting, you know, sensitive sites, um, I think is a pretty good tribute to that intelligence. And I think there's cooperation between the United States and Israel at a very high level now on these things as well. Uh, finally, and I apologize, Rabbi Yudin has a lot to tell us for Erev Shabbos Shuvah. Um, I saw that, the, and you had this in the weekly, in the Daily Alert, about the dramatic dip in successful ISIS attacks. And the numbers do prove that um, uh, ISIS is not nearly as effective, thank God, as they used to be. Is it a lack of funding? Is it a is it uh, uh, is it the uh, inability to get more volunteers? Remember how how they were getting volunteers by the thousands when their efforts uh, began is it simply the intelligence that Israel the United States and others have now against them around the world what would you attribute it to all of the above are factors that we have uh, isolated them geographically and that's why this battle is really uh, the key because it's the real last remnant of that infrastructure uh, the, uh, but ISIS is not dead that's that is the message that while the numbers are diminished it's still there and Al-Qaeda is still there, and we will see them arise, and, and they, they organize in other countries and, and appear then. Again, you know, you don't need, ISIS doesn't need big numbers in order to carry out attacks and, and right. engage in the terrorism, etc. So, yeah, so this battle is very important about the future of ISIS. That's why the United States remains troops. I hope the United States will remain committed there because it's a presence to stop the cross-four-country uh, highway and efforts that that Iran is engaged in they announced that they want to build a railroad uh, through through Iraq into Syria which is another effort for them to create this Shiite crescent um, through through uh, Lebanon to the Mediterranean and the the sort of battle with ISIS is one aspect and again why I tell people they really have to uh, understand and take time to figure out all the different parties, all the interaction of the parties in, in this. It's very easy to come, and, and rumors have such uh, prevalence today that immediately everybody just assumes something is true or, or happening. Uh, Hezbollah, for instance, is getting the precision guidance systems for heavy rockets, so there are continuing investments, continuing Iranian uh, shipments of weapons, more sophisticated, bigger uh, weapons, and the... Um, uh, you know, so we have multi-fronted wars uh, uh, with such complexity, and that's why we need to have clarity and why a lot of the infighting and stuff really is so counterproductive. That's for sure. Wishing you a happy, healthy, sweet New Year and an easy fast, and hopefully we'll speak next week. We'll let the audience know uh, exactly what the schedule will be over the uh, the period between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Great. Gemar to everyone, and a really healthy and, and happy year. Thank you so much. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM.